What's up, y'all? We are going to talk about evangelism. We all think we know what evangelism is, don't we? Uh, and usually we don't. And usually we totally misunderstand it. Um, usually we have lots of, of bad understandings or partial understandings of what it actually is. And so you can think of, we've just been given the, the big vision. Now we're, we're going to start working in a little bit more specifically. We're still going to be on a pretty large scale. Tomorrow, I think it's going to get a little more practical. But talking about evangelism. We're calling it ecclesial evangelism, but there's no such thing as non-ecclesial evangelism. That's part of the thesis of what we're going to, we're going to figure out. All right. Um, so just to give you a sense of where we're going to be going, one, one, uh, one way to summarize, if you were asked, what is God doing in the world? The most general question Right? But how would you summarize what is God doing in the world? I think normally we would say selecting out individuals to get to heaven. Right? He's just he's trying to get people a ticket to heaven. He's like Ticketmaster. Yeah? Instead, I think if we were to read all of Scripture, we're going to see he's working together to gather a community through Christ by the Holy Spirit into his presence on earth as it in, is in heaven. That his primary purpose is to be forming churches as embassies of his kingdom on earth as it already is in heaven. All right, That's where, that's where we're going to end up, so keep that paradigm in your mind. And it's really another way to think of total Christ spirituality. Um, I thought we would start with trying to define evangelism. And there's... These are just a couple of preconceived stereotypes that I thought of. You may want to throw out a few others. So, is it us, superior people, self-righteously looking down on others and trying to get them to agree with us? No, it's not. Um, one, one quote to help us sort of debunk that idea. This is not evangelism of a proselytizing, triumphalist sort that plots to destroy Islam. His book was in relation to Islam. Rather, it sets forth Jesus as the fulfillment of the hearts of all of us longing for peace with God. It is an expression of hospitality in which one wants to give one's, only one's best to one's companion at the common meal. And the best we can offer is Jesus, the seal of the prophets. It is one beggar saying to another beggar, we have found bread, come eat with us. So that just gets at the, the gospel-centered aspect of this is not us reaching down to, to people that aren't like us. Okay? Is it the sinless teaching the sinful how to become sinless? No. Does evangelism happen outside the church where you make a decision and only after you become a Christian do you then enter the church? Again, we're going to say by no means. That maybe is is the most popular paradigm, at least in today's generation. You guys ever watch, uh, does anybody watch The Office? Comedy show. Um, Michael Scott is the main character. He's played by Steve Carell. He's like this clueless, hilarious um, guy, but just, he's socially awkward. And he realizes that he has all these financial issues, credit card debt, and he's trying to get help from his budget guy. And the budget guy suggests maybe you just need to go declare bankruptcy. And he thinks about it. And the next shot is he walks out in the common room of his, of his office and he says, I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> and he thinks that's it. 
That, I think, is how we think of becoming a Christian. It's just up to you. And once you say it, that's it. Think about that. Instead of, for him, bankruptcy would be going through the institution of the state, entering into all these contracts, whatever. For us, for, for full conversion, uh, it's going to involve the church. All right? Um, the number four there just gets at one of the, the motivations from Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. This is, this is one of the, the answers to what actually evangelism is. For the love of Christ controls us. You know, Preston mentioned earlier this, this earnestness, this eagerness. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. That those who might live, no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Rather than a burden, mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission is more like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout, which is not lethal, but life-giving. All right, so think of that as the, the foundation. By the way, I don't know if you noticed, but your handout has an, has an outline that gives you an overview of where we're going. That's the first page. So if that's helpful, rip it off and have it alongside the rest of the handout, which is, is more of the details. All right, so if we're going to understand evangelism, we have to understand the end game, the goal, conversion. And so I want to take some time now and look at Acts 2, 36 to 47. Um, and to see how this, this helps us understand what evangelism is, what is the mission of the church. So Acts 2, the story of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends on the church, uh, and Peter gives a sermon not on the Holy Spirit, but on Christ. And this is what he says. This is the conclusion. We're jumping into the conclusion of Peter's sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, if you were reading this in your Bible, um, there would be a section break. And it would say something like, Fellowship of Believers or something. And then we would read the next section. Right? Uh, similar, unfortunately, to your handout where it's on a new page. What if we were to read it differently without the section headings, which are not biblical? So whenever it gives a chapter headings, those aren't biblical. 
Don't think that the biblical writer put that there. It's meant to help us. Often it confuses us. What if we were to read straight from verse 41 to 42 and the rest of following? How is that going to change our vision of what was happening? All right? Peter preaches a sermon. They're like, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized. Thousands of souls come to them, it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Don't stop at verse 41. Read all the way to 47, and you get this full picture of what it meant to be converted. And he does say repent and be baptized, and so baptism, already you're you're getting the church and the presence in there, but but it gets filled out with everything. You could see the five marks in those passages right there. How do we do that? Let's see. So, Let's, let's slow down a little bit. So I'm asking, where do you see the covenant word and temple presence working in tandem throughout this passage? So give some, shout out some answers. Where do you see uh, gospel-centered at work in this Acts 2 passage? Peter's sermon. Peter's sermon. Yeah, that's the easy one, right? This is who Christ is. Come, and forgiveness of sins is yours if you repent and believe, Okay. What about missional? We're sort of still unpacking what missional means, but... He must have been doing this, and he was doing this in a place where the world could be there and come and respond. Earlier in Acts 2, what happens in Pentecost is they hear the gospel preached in their own language, in the languages of, of people from around the world. Right? Languages like French and German and things like that. It wasn't those, but. So he's there in the world. That's the missional aspect. What? Day by day, they kept going. They were on mission. That's what it meant. The community was gathering. The community was gathering. And what were they doing when they were gathering? Breaking bread. Which does not just mean eating, by the way, it means the Lord's Supper. Later, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians, and Paul says, why are you coming to church to eat? You can, you can eat at home. You're not partaking in the body of Christ when you abuse it in that way. Well, there was another one? Prayers? Prayers. Prayers. Praising, God. Praising God. Where's the confessional? What? Confessing their sins. Apostles' teaching. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Did we miss anything? Confession of the faith. faith. Yeah. Awe came upon every soul. They were selling everyone who believed had all things in common. That's That's the communal Christ our King under His reign. All right, so 
first major point is, is basically to see this holistic mission of the church. That to be converted but to stop at repent and believe or to stop at repent and be baptized, you're still cutting yourself off from what Christ is doing through the church. All right. Um, the next section in the handout, we're looking at Westminster. We're not going to read all of these, but I, I cobbled together sort of highlights from Westminster that would help us understand what happened in Acts 2. What are all the things that's going on that happened in Acts 2? And then that's going to show us this full picture of, of conversion and evangelism. So first you have the effectual call, which is God's Spirit enabling them to hear. Okay? Presumably not everyone who was there responded. It takes regeneration first. Then you have repentance and faith, which was obvious when he says repent and be baptized. Repent being the other side of faith. You can't come to Christ without repenting. Baptism, where they're joined to Christ. The Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread, where they are renewing, where God is renewing the covenant to them, they're renewing the covenant that has once and for all been accomplished in Christ. And then the communion of saints. This is, you know, I don't know if it's okay for pastors to like rank Westminster, but if I were to rank it, communion of saints is like top three for me, this section, 26. Listen to what it says. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his grace, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being, that, that's huge already, right? You have fellowship with Christ. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. And then section 2. Saints, by profession, are bound to performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things, according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, as God offers opportunity, is to be expended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, if you are to read that slowly, you should, I mean, always when you're reading the confession, you, you should try to read it slowly because each word is sort of agonized over. But notice in the first section, we're united to one another. That's a, that's a definition of a saint. A definition of a saint is that you're united to Christ. Saint just means holy ones. You've been made holy by Christ. And you're united to one another. That's part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. You're part of a new family, and you didn't get to choose your brothers and sisters. They were chosen for you by God. One, another word he uses, they use, are obliged to the performance of such duties. What does that word obliged mean? Got to do it. It's not a choice. Not unlike a family, right? You don't choose each day, are you going to love your mom and dad today? And it's like this voluntary thing that you can get in and out of. This is now who you are as a Christian. 
Does anybody want to interact at this point with anything of, of, of Westminster and Acts 2? So we're going to sort of move to more of a conclusion next, but. Yeah. Tight as in tight. Yeah, I mean, or tight as in. Well, I mean, it's, it's not a choice. Yeah. Well, one way to think of it is it's an essential element of Jesus' presence in life in the world. I mean, remember, everything we're talking about is, is after presence. It's this, don't think of it legalistically or. I mean, the covenant regulates what healthy life looks like. And so in a covenant way, you would say it, wow, that's tight, i.e. it's it's commanded. Yeah. That's, a, that's a regulative principle applied to the communion of saints, right? The temple way of saying it is, and this is something I think we have to learn to do in evangelism, is to talk about our spirituality in a temple, more temple way, because people are more right now open to that, because they're reacting against the perversion of the covenant way. So if you say it in a temple way, how would you say it? How would you speak of this issue of the communion of saints in a temple way? A, a, a covenant way would say, like you just said, and by the way, admittedly, though there's beautiful covenantal, I mean, temple uh, language in our confession, and it has a ton of sacramental language in it that most people miss, but by and large, the Western tradition of which Westminster is part emphasized the covenant. So how would you say temple? Communion of saints. How would how would you explain that to the, to someone? Talk about how uh, participation in the Lord's Supper when Paul talks about it. Participating in the body, the bread, we all become part of the same bread. Okay, that's that's a focusing on the Lord's Supper. Anybody else? We are being transformed, mm-hmm. converted by God. Into the image of his son. And so by God's what? presence. Yeah. When we want another, when we do the communion, I mean, here's the way I would put it. Someone said to me, why are we going to the pub up in Brantford to do evangelism? Remember we did that? What do we call that thing? Uh, Unsad. Unsad. And I said, because every single person that walks in that door is going to touch Jesus Christ. Because Christ is in, with, and through the flesh of the body of Christ. And the body of Christ will be there, and there is a there is going to be an encounter with Jesus Christ there. Presence. See how different that is. So why would you want to? Why would you? Would you why would you want to go to a small group? Why would you want to take care of one another and do one anothering? I mean, did you notice in John, who's all about temple, he always talks about one anothering. And I think the term one anothering is the most common used word in John. One another. One another. One another. Why? Because of a temple. So so what you would say is. I would say, you know, you want the fullness of Christ in your life? Read that, and that would be the answer to how you get his fullness. That's how I would answer it. Versus, it's a command. Well, this, but Though it is. About, it's all about one another, too. I mean, yeah. you read the whole thing. The inward, outward man. I mean, exactly. that's mystical language going on there. Yeah. That, in that so that's, that's how I that's. But this is exactly what, so every one of these things that we're talking about, communion of saints, which is the king, community building, you can say it covenantally, or you can say it temple or missionally. Mm. And we've got to learn to say it more missionally in this day and age. Mm. Yeah. I think I know that the each other's gifts and grace. So if we're talking about us as the temple, right? Mm. Mm. Also Corporately, the temple, yes. That, that Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. You know, out of, out of being united together in love. Right, right. I'll say this one quick thing. I can't tell you, I, I'm going to confess to sin right now. I don't want to be here tonight. I was commanded to, so I came. Praise God for the covenant. Keep your word. Maybe keep your job. That was part of it. <laughs> but, uh, but there was a command to, to, to one another. There's, I, I can't think of a pastoral visit where I, I said, man, I really want to go do this pastoral visit. Every one of them, I go, God, I'm just lazy. I'd rather sit here and watch this football game. You know? I can't think of a time, and I'm not exaggerating here, I can't think of a time when I've been with you, this church, or with you at a pastoral visit in your home, where I walk away absolutely enlightened. You see, that's temple. I needed Jesus in my life. And I needed the covenant to make me do it. Because when I wasn't with his presence vis-a-vis -vis the church, I didn't know what I was missing. So the covenant mm. and, and the temple work beautiful together. Mm. So you're right. It's a command. And he's right about what he's doing with the missional. It's, it's Jesus when we do that. Mm. We never lose Jesus disappointment. Mm. All right, I'm gonna put. I'm gonna. I'm gonna pull a little audible. Um, that that comment though reminds me of. I can't look at it this way. Sorry. Pull up if you have a Bible. Vintage, vintage, baby. That's so old school. So old school. <laughs> Second Corinthians. He's off the map, man. Let's see where he goes here. Let's do it. There we go. We're going to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I believe. Have some grace. Have some grace. Here we go. 2 Corinthians 3. Uh, the end of the chapter. Chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter, at the very end of chapter 3, we read in verse 18, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What does that mean? We're, we're being transformed into Christ. So when Preston made that comment about you're, you're, this is how you're going to touch Christ, 
how is Christ going to bless you today? It's going to be through the Word, if you're reading Scripture. But it's also going to be through a one-anothering when someone in the body of Christ is encouraging you or declaring mercy to you after you confess their sins. Right? If you go to chapter 4, in verse 5, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So how do we get a glimpse of the glory of God? Well, apparently it's going to be through broken people, jars of clay, who are proclaiming not themselves, but Jesus Christ. And the whole book of 2 Corinthians, you could say, is about how Paul's life itself and how the church is supposed to embody the gospel in the way that his sufferings end up proclaiming the gospel. And so the church itself not only proclaims in word, but proclaims in, in deed and is transformed into becoming the body of Christ through his paradigm of cross and resurrection. All right, back to the handout. Audible's over. Uh, so what we've said, one way to summarize, is conversion necessarily involves the church because being a Christian necessarily involves being in the church. Um, and here, these are, these are some of my, my notes. Consider how many aspects of the New Testament, either explicitly or implicitly, address Christians as already in community, address Christians with or under ecclesial authority, try to mitigate communal disputes, attempt to set up communal structures, give commands that require a community or that cannot by definition be obeyed alone, and or define what Christ accomplished as reconciling groups of people into one body. And I just listed a bunch that came to mind. There's probably more. In an effort to say, one, the church is everywhere. The, communi- the community that God is gathering together is all over Scripture. And it's so overwhelming that it's basically assumed that that is the main issue. Like when Paul, we're reading Paul's mail about how he can form community under Christ. It's so much of Scripture. Now listen to how a, a Scottish Presbyterian puts it in a more eloquent way than I did. James Bannerman. The Society of Christians is not an accidental or voluntary union which has grown up of itself. It is a union designed beforehand, appointed from the beginning by God, and plainly contemplated and required in every page of the New Testament. There are precepts in the Bible addressed not to believers separately, but to believers associated together into a corporate society. There are duties that are enjoined upon the body and not upon the members of which it is composed. There are powers assigned to the community to which the individuals of the community are strangers. 
There is a government, an order, a code of laws, a system of ordinances and officers described in Scripture, which can apply to none other than a collective association of Christians. Without the existence of a church or of a body of believers as contradistinguished from believers individually, very much of what is contained in the Bible would be unintelligible and without practical application. So do you get what he's saying there? He's basically saying you can't read the Bible without either being in the church or seeing the importance of this is part, this is part and parcel of what God's doing in the world. All right? Interrupt me if you guys have questions. Yeah. Yeah. Or you can't say, I mean, it's easy to say, I love, I love humanity, I'm loving my neighbor, but those guys in the church, they're just really hard to love. So I'm not going to congregate with them. And it's not only that you're contradicting Scripture, it's that you can't experience the presence of Christ when you do that. You're, you're cutting yourself off from His body. By definition. All right, we're moving into some more implications of this. One, one quick implication here is in evangelism, where I say that, talk about the place where Jesus reigns as king, is in the church. So in evangelism, we do not invite people to make Jesus their king. We tell people that Jesus is their king. We do not invite people to Jesus. We warn people that they will meet Jesus as their conquering king, either through the gospel or as their judge on the final day. We do not offer a gospel invitation. We command people to repent and submit to the coming king. Now, of course, we have to do that contextually and sensitively and all that. But we tend to treat evangelism like a salesman selling to the consumer who's always right. right? The consumer's always right if you're in a business. Rather than inviting them into the community where Jesus the King reigns fully and redemptively. So one way to understand evangelism is to say, Jesus is your king, and his kingdom is in the church. It's not, do you want to make Jesus your king, although it is in some sense, but he's already their king. But his posture is judgment if they're not in Christ. Therefore, becoming a Christian means becoming a part of a whole new way of life and community. And here's a quote from a book about the early church. Pagan converts to the Christian mainstream did not, for the most part, first understand the faith and then decide to become Christians. Rather, the process was reversed. They first decided, and then they understood. More precisely, they were first attracted by the Christian community and form of life. They submitted themselves to prolonged catechetical instruction, in which they practiced new modes of behavior and learned the stories of Israel and their fulfillment in Christ. Only after had they acquired proficiency in the alien Christian language and form of life, were they deemed able intelligently and responsibly to profess the faith, to be baptized. So what is he saying there? One way to summarize that is to say, how do you define missions? Missions is not people leaving the church, going out and saying, you should become a Christian. Great, you're a Christian now, now come to the church. Rather, missions is inviting people to church and say, look at, look at how everything is different under Christ. This is who Christ is. 
under, under gospel-centered. This is what it means to, to change all of your relationships and way of life. This is part of the history that you now f- put yourself into when you become a Christian. You're reading the Bible as your family history. And you sort of you start to take on this way of life. You start to enter a family and say, yeah, hey, one way this family works is that we have reunions in July. One way this family works is that we come on Sunday and we do all this stuff that we just read about in Acts 2. Come and, come and try it out. Try to put on some of the clothing. See how it fits. Why is that so important to the essence of evangelism? Because there's still an aspect of sharing the faith. Sharing your faith individually, of course. But that necessarily is limited. By definition, it has to be limited. Because how can you experience the fullness of Christ in all those ways that we just mentioned one-on-one? You can't. So, you, so, so this is not, hopefully this is not like, lead you to think, all right, I guess I don't ever need to talk about Jesus on my own. No, obviously not. That's not the point. But the point is to realize the purpose the goal, you could even do it with, with more amount of freedom because you're saying it's not my job to convert this person. And conversion looks like becoming a member of the body of Christ, being engrafted in the way that Paul talked about Gentiles into the Jews. All right? Anybody want to interact? Keep moving. Yeah, Lisa. That's a great question. Um, well, don't, missional and evangelism don't compete. So, we're, so it's not an either or. But absolutely that's missional. When you're, you're a part of a community group, you invite your neighbors into the community group, and they're there just not to get content in the scripture, although hopefully they do get some content. But they're also there to see how you guys love one another. Right? That's even how Jesus says the world's going to judge us, by how, the, how we love one another. So they're going to see the community in action. So one thing about the five marks is that you're rarely going to be inhabiting one by itself. So even in that instance, you are under missional, but it's also gospel-centered because you're talking about the gospel. And it's also confessional because you're doing it having learned with the church what the faith is. And it's also communal. And it's also actually sacramental because you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper in your community group, but you're doing community in the flesh of that neighborhood. You're speaking English. You're meeting in a home. You're having certain meals. That's all like flesh-type language. Why don't you explain the difference between joint and several? That might help. Because it's still the church doing it. It's just the church acting joint versus several. Yeah, so Preston mentioned the difference between joint and several, which is, uh, which is a traditional way to describe the difference between Christians, Christians doing things out in the world, like what you just described, as a community group, or as individuals, we're talking with our neighbor, this is who Jesus is. That's Christians acting severally, like we're, we're split up. right? So, so in that, you, you can think of it as, 
it's no, it, it's still the body of Christ split up, but there are also things in Scripture where where we are. We're, we're told that the church has unique authority jointly. So one example would be, we're told the church has the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You mentioned being bound in heaven, loosed in heaven, admitting people to the Lord's Supper, which is what we're going to talk about in a second. That gets the church discipline, that gets to excommunication. Those are things that the church does jointly. Meaning, when the church... Sitting, sitting in session under, under the government and order that Christ has set up, they're going to be acting together and saying, you are a Christian, you're welcome to partake, this is, this is the church's mission, this is what we should do, this is what we shouldn't do, making sort of, exec, think of it as executive decisions. Whereas a pastor may be on the session, but if I'm walking out the street, I'm not going to say, excommunicate on my own. I don't have that power, severally out of my own. So when you're in a community group, you're going to be inviting them into the, into the body of Christ, right? But you're not going to say, are you a Christian? Okay, I'll take your word for it. Now you're a member of our church. You see the difference? Yeah, the key is, it's the church acting in both instances. I mean, you are never acting individualistically. Everything you're doing is saying is united to this to the church of Jesus Christ. You see what I mean? I mean, what what do you teach? You know, how do you do all that? So, so the key of the joint and several is that while I might meet with you personally as a pastor, I'm doing so in the office of church pastor. So the church is meeting with you through vis-a-vis the pastor. Well, your your office is Christian member. As a Christian member, you're out there in your neighborhood acting. But you're not acting on behalf of yourself. You're acting on behalf of Christ, who is mediated in the body of Christ. So the church is acting both severally and jointly. So whatever was good about Young Life, in a way that got me saved, I could trace every bit of, bit of it to the, to the church acting jointly. Councils that were done in the third century. You know, teachings that were clarified Interpreting scripture from Greek and Hebrew, which none of those young white theaters could do. I mean, on and on and on it goes. You see, the church was acting through that young white leader, even if the young white leader didn't know. And you had access to all the marks, even most of the marks, even if it wasn't being formally in place. At least two of them. Yeah. yeah. That help. Yeah, and, and also, so, so that also means when we say church, we don't just mean Sunday morning at 10. We mean the body of Christ and all that it's doing. That's, that's the sort of epicenter. That's going to be where you're seeing all of the aspects of Acts 2, what a church is supposed to be, that's all present in worship. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, Miranda.
Lucy. I'm not sure what you're asking. Yeah, hopefully that there are a lot of people in church on Sundays that aren't Christian. So that's one thing. Is that right? In approach to evangelism? Oh, I see. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Were you going to answer that, David, or you want me to? No, I, I was just. So, so, so one, one good, this is, this is what strikes me, one good example is our view of what's happening in worship. So if, you're, if you want to do a worship for non-believers, there's two options. Well, there's probably more than one, more than two. But you can either do a, do a service that it's going to be as seeker-sensitive as possible. You want to make it open, as open as possible, and you want to get them to a decision. Right? That's not what we do here. Is that because we're not evangelistic? We would say no. But we would say the other option is we want to invite them to see what life is like in the body of Christ. Because being a Christian is more than just having made a decision. Being a Christian is being incorporated into the full body of Christ. So hopefully a service is still missional in the sense that it's open to everyone. Right, But it's going to be walking through the steps of the gospel in all the ways that we do, confession of sin, all that stuff, so that they can see the fullness of Christ. And I, yeah, and the, picking off that fullness, it's a mystery. And I think we just need to keep saying to ourselves, that's okay. But I be, we believe that when a person is, encounters Christ vis-a-vis the 
the communion of the body of Christ during its worship, it's a, that they are touching Christ in ways that transcend their rationality. They're, they are touching the priest and the king and the prophet, and they don't even know that. So I think, ironically, the seeker-sensitive service that tends to be the revivalist band Bible decision is giving them two parts Christ. And it's not as powerful a Christ. Now, granted, it's, it's very useful. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'd love to be doing something like that on a Saturday night. For but the point being is that it, it's kind of a pre-evangelism is the way we view it. It's almost pre-evangelism. But, but what I would say, if I could do it, if we had the resources to do it, I don't know, I'd have to work this out in the session, so don't quote me on this. But, but I would love to have a really great event on a Saturday night or a Friday night where it really was the genre of revival, the band, the Bible, the band, the Bible, and the, and the, and the you know, very practical stuff. And, um, and then when they say, what, and then when we get to this point of well, what you know, someone says, or, or in the context of the service, it said, well, what must we do to become Christian? I'd say, go meet Jesus at 135 Whitney at 1030, whatever. In other words, go to a temple where he will hang out with you. And that would be my answer, because that's what it was in Acts. What should we do to be saved? <laughs> go down there in that, that community that he just described yeah. and hang out there. And that's, if you go read the, the early church, that's how people got saved. They, jo they quote, join the church. You'll see that tomorrow when I use it. They, quote, join the church before they got saved. Now, I don't mean they joined it officially. Augustine was, went to the church and got catechized for a year before he was baptized and was saved. And he would say, that's when he was saved, not in the garden when, when he heard the voice say, read and all that stuff. So that's an example of what we're saying. It's a total different way of thinking about of, you know, conversion. It's going back to the church that really was, you know, if you think about the first century, that's really closer to what's happening in New England now. Because you're going in, we live in a world where no one even has heard the gospel, many of them. You know? So if I'm doing evangelism in Christendom, I assume that everybody's walking around with guilt all over the place, and all I'm, I'm going to be talking about just that, that, that all the time. I'm, God will set you free from your guilt. Here, people aren't feeling guilty if they're, going, if, they're, if they're sleeping, if they're living with their boyfriend. They think we're crazy because we did. No. They, they really judge us morally. I mean, I know that for a fact. <laughs> you see, so, so that method of doing evangelism where we assume everybody's out there Christianized, at least with enough morality to be guilty about it, doesn't kind of work up in, in a, in a pre-modern or a post-modern context. We've got to help them experience. We've got to touch Christ somehow. So that's the difference of it. Martha? I was just going to say the liturgy kind of reflects that too. By yeah. The table. That's right. Absolutely. So she's talking about when we celebrate communion, we say if you're not here, if you're here but you're not a Christian, you haven't joined a, some gospel-believing church, we're glad you're here. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Another. Another thing that your question sparked, Miranda, is um, so, so part of my job is to lead athletes in action at Yale as a parachurch ministry. And so I see it as the sort of very edge of the fingertips of the body of Christ. And so when someone is experiencing Christ at AIA, it's in this partial, hinted, like they're getting you know, mostly one mark. Um, but it's, it, it's hoping to grab them into the fullness. But by definition, AIA is not going to offer the fullness of the body of Christ. 
by definition. So we don't even try, right? I like, I like your illustration a while ago. It kind of got us off this. Come in and try on the clothes. Yeah. I, I, I just thought that was rich. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think it's both. I think it's if you, if, to repent and believe unites you to the body of Christ. Part of believing is uniting you to the head and the body of Christ. That's why often you have repent and be baptized. Baptized is not a proclamation or a declaration of what you've done. You don't baptize yourself. Yeah. Baptism necessarily involves that community. Yeah. So so don't take that too literally as far as you know we should we should stop inviting people to Jesus. Uh, what he's trying to say there is that Jesus already is their king. And so it's not, it's not like an invitation where Jesus is sitting back waiting to be their king. He's saying, you need to submit to your king. This is who he is. right? So the proper response is to repent. And to come under, to enter his kingdom. right? How do you submit to a king? You don't just do it individually in any nation state. You enter his kingdom. And... But who baptized you? <laughs> but were they organized in any way? Why did they baptize? Okay, so it was a minister of an organization. Okay, so you're being—I mean—you're being baptized by that organization who's working as the presence of Christ in your life to say you're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you're so you're being baptized into the body of Christ still. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So you're being. I mean, you're still there. They are acting. This is where it gets messy. This sort of gets to Fred's question. They are acting as a church. We would say. They're just not calling themselves that. So you, um, they're saying that they have the authority to declare that you're a Christian. They're opening the kingdom of God to you. Right? Because they wouldn't baptize you if you weren't a Christian. Right? So whether they know it or not, that's, that's how we would understand what's happening in baptism. And so they're assuming this, this authority and this role in your life under Christ.
And so you have, you have become a part of the global Catholic universal church by that. You have become a part of the visible church as it's located in that specific place wherever you were, even if they would have called themselves church. Yeah, God uses us despite our theology. That's true, but we certainly want to go back to Fred's question. I mean, that's very true. That's almost verbatim what I said, so I really agree with you. But, but just keep in mind, there's more and less healthy baptisms. There's more and less healthy bodies. So I'm so worried that we walk away thinking um, it's, it, it's not magic. Um, that's our problem with the Roman Catholic view is that they tend to treat it almost becomes magic you know that you got a baby people do it all the time they walk in here and they say will you baptize my child and I have to explain to them the power and efficacy of baptism mm. isn't in the baby having a service it's what baptism functions to do to that baby mm. which is to graft them into the very visible body of Christ wherein they will have access to a prophet, to a priest, to a king, to the covenant, to the temple, all of it, that baby has access to that. So mm. the power of that baptism, ironically, is so weak by the time you get through with it, if it's just something you did on, you know, with, you know, on a day, whatever, that it, it, I would suggest anecdotally that we could do a study of how many children who were baptized but were not raised in a church really completed that cycle and became professing credible professions of faith. I bet very small number of them would. Which means baptism was very weak, even if they got baptized. So I'm in so we gotta just kind of keep the balance. But yes, it's, it's sort of it's sort of like there's two questions. So if you were to come to our church and say this is how we were baptized, we would say, yeah, that counts. But it's like we're not gonna search for the lowest common denominator. What's what's the worst kind of baptism that still counts? That's not our goal. Right? Even though we're not going to rebaptize you. So we're still going to recognize it as you're being, you have been baptized into, into the church. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to punt that to tomorrow. That'll be Preston. He's going to give us a nice tree where we come from. But good question. Thank you. All right. Let's move on. Um, let's see. How much more do we have to do? 20 minutes. All right. Um, so one of the... Let's see. Why don't you guys just read? Can you guys just read this on your own? Admission into the church, discerning a credible profession of faith, or should we talk about it? Trying to understand from from, from child's baptism to the Lord's Supper what's going on there. Um, it is an important topic. So there's a full paper on it. You can you can see the website where I linked. Um, and I tried to, to summarize and to hit the highlights of what's going on here as far, to understand Lord's Supper. And this will connect to being missional because it's trying to understand 
who is the church and who is welcomed into the church and who's not. And if you're a child who's been baptized, but you don't take the Lord's Supper yet, you're not a full communicant member, we would call them. Why is that? Right? How, how, is, how, how is the church to discern whether that child has the rights and privileges of a full communicant member? All right? Where does that come from? So it comes from um, a lot of different places. Two key passages that will help us see it is one, 1 Corinthians 10. This is Paul. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. That is a very deep passage. And um, one of the reasons is that word participation and that word participant comes, comes from the Greek word koinonia. And so participate sounds pretty weak to us, I think. But it's a very deep word. It means more like communion, more like fellowship, more like sharing. So in the least, Paul is saying there's something very profound happening in the Lord's Supper. You are participating in the blood of Christ. In the same way that in the Old Testament, they, the word of grace was declared, and in order to participate in that, they would eat of the sacrifices. So communion is par excellence, where you see word and, and presence in one place. You see the word because what Christ has done once and for all. We declare that word every week. We're not changing it. We participate in it through the sacrament as we eat the body, the bread and wine, right? Um, so that, that summarizing Lord's Supper as communion with Christ, the head, Jesus. And then also the Lord's Supper as communion with the body of Christ, the church. Um, this is a long passage, as you can tell. Um, jump to, well, let's just start in verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So he's saying, when you guys come together, you're acting as if this is a regular meal. It's not. Uh, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. This is, it's almost like poetic, ceremonial. It's, It's recited verbatim what he said on that night. And said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. 
Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. All right, so I'm mentioning this here because the movement from entering the church as a child, if that's what happened, and you were baptized, into being received as a full communicant member means that you can fulfill all the rights and privileges that this passage assumes. And so there's a lot that it's, that it's talking about. You can discern the body and blood, meaning you can discern what Christ did. You can discern your own sin on the cross to commune with Jesus Christ. You can also be a full participate, participant, uh, a, a full individual who's responsible to the body of Christ. Notice how so much of his... Uh, anger is coming out of the fact that they are not acting as if the one body of Christ. And, and, and a child is not able to act individually on their own as a full member in that way. Right? Because they're still under, they still need their parents to, like they're not tithing, they're not, they're not able to vote in a congregational meeting out of their own autonomous decision making under the, under the Lordship of Christ. They can't assume those sorts of responsibilities um, to commune with the body in this significant way. Um, those, are, those are the key aspects. Let's, we need to move on um, so you can read some more of the details. Um, if conversion, in, in number three, main heading number three, if conversion evangelism involves the church, what exactly is the church? We've touched on this a little bit. Um, but just to remind you, and maybe this will spark some discussion, too. What the church is not. It's not a theater. It's not a product to offer consumers. It's not the most pragmatic way to grow. Well, it is, but that's not, that's not why we do it. And it's not something that Christians just came up with to help each other. And I think a lot of us can, can treat it that way. It's voluntary... One day, we don't know who, but one Christian some way back in the first century said, we should all gather together on Sundays. It's not what it is. What are some, what are some other, um, does anybody want to throw out other notions that you have of the church that you're, you're starting to realize that it's not? Or maybe ways that you treat the church as one of these things? A social club. A social club. Democracy. A democracy. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. To participate. Think how that totally transforms your your church life and your discipleship. And church isn't a place where you go and get served up so that you can go out and then do the real stuff of a Christian outside of the rest of the week. Right. A political movement. Is that what Faith said too? Jinx. <laughs> it's not a political movement, okay? Because we have no allegiance to any one political movement, any one state. Um, all right, what the church is? Go ahead, Dan. Okay. Okay. 
All right, so that's a, good, that's a great point, Dan. So if it was that, what would it say about the gospel? Yeah. Yeah. So, so remember, a, a fundamental thesis, I think, of, of all of Scripture is that the gospel is essentially communal, that the church is an essential element, the church defined in this way. So, so that, that reminds me. So, so, so if church is a theater, what is the gospel? Entertainment. What else? A script. It's a good show. It's going to meet the needs you already have. I think a, more, a really popular paradigm today is a self-help. Yeah. It's practical. Yeah. You go to place because it's practical. It's, a, it's going to help me in my life. Yeah, better. and it's true that that could be some of that, but most of the early Christians it didn't help their life very much at all. <laughs> they were martyred, but they but they had but they did get more full of Christ. Yeah, yeah. So you can't measure the success of a church and how well it helps you make money on Monday or something. Like that. Right, right. And there's an aspect to all of these where where it, it sort of does that, but if a church has swung so far that it's only become theater, entertainment, or consumeristic, right? It's optional as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, what the church is, you can look at these quotes, uh, some of the major metaphors of the church, the body of Christ on earth as it is in heaven, the fullness of Christ, the holy priesthood, the temple of God, the household of God, the embodiment of God's mission and reign. Uh, I put in what Westminster defines it as, a divine institution Institution being something that God instituted rather than something that humans instituted. Um, number four is, is similar to what you can find in Preston's handout from above about the redemptive historical trajectories through Scripture. And you see how, for example, be fruitful and multiply God's holy presence informing the church goes from one family in Genesis to one nation of families in Exodus and the rest of Israel to families of nations in Christ. Um, we're going to blow through that as well. Um, but, it, but it works all the way up to Christ. Um, go to number four, see what it says during the ascension. So this is page seven. How do we understand our place like, in, in redemptive history? Where is the church in redemptive history? Uh, we, are, we are under the ascended ministry of Christ, anabeno. Jesus has ascended. All right, so God's judgment having begun on Christ, our time in history now, is between Christ's ascension and his coming again, the time when his reign at the right hand of God is a hidden reality, that time in which signs are granted of that hidden reign but in which the full revelation of its power and glory is held back in order that all the nations, all the human communities, may have the opportunity to repent and believe in freedom. Um, So why is that important here? I see that as important because it situates the church under the kingdom of God. The king is in heaven. By his Holy Spirit, we are united to him and have this union. And his mission is to send out embassies throughout the world that we are going to experience, that we are going to see by faith, 
now. You're only a part of the embassy by faith. So just because you're in a church doesn't mean you're, you're a part of the embassy. Just because you hear a sermon doesn't mean you hear the word. But if you think of the, the idea of an embassy, when you, when you walk onto an American embassy in Paris, you're walking onto American soil quite literally, and you're protected by American laws. Um, and Jesus' presence is there. So here's the Great Commission, Matthew 28. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's the king. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Where, where is... Uh, the covenant in the temple in that, in the, in the Great Commission. A lot of times we hear the Great Commission and we just think we got to go to far-flung places. What's a better way to understand the Great Commission? I am with you. Yeah, he's promising to be with you and he's saying you all. Remember, usually when it's you, it's you plural. And also baptizing. We're experiencing Christ as our priest. When he's telling them to go baptize and teaching confessional. So all this leads to what Preston very briefly mentioned earlier. But So church planning becomes the evangelistic strategy. Why? Because that's how people gain access to the fullness of Christ through the church. That's how the gospel gets fully proclaimed and experienced and seen. It's how they gain access to the presence of the reign of God. Um, Becoming a new social order. And so discipleship becomes inherent to community formation. All right, let's jump to number five. So this is page eight. Number five. So this is taking that thesis that the evangelistic strategy is, plan- is church planning and trying to break that down into a little bit of a more specific, uh, trying to understand it. So being, what does it mean for us to be missional in different cultures or encountering or becoming the word in every flesh? Jesus, in the Gospel of John, we're told the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. He didn't just dwell, he became a temple among us, he tabernacled among us. This is the real world. That was his incarnation. But then he tells us later in the Gospel of John, you want me to leave? You don't want to hold on to me? You don't want me to stay? You want me to leave because then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit? And what happened is the temple of God from Israel gets transferred to Christ. The Gospel of John especially shows us, but we see it all throughout Scripture, that the advantages, the privileges, the rights of the temple are transferred to Jesus now. We have access to God. That's where we're forgiven, all these things. And then as Jesus unites us to himself, we become the temple. So a lot of people say, man, I just wish I was around during Jesus' time. That would have been a lot better for us. That would have been worse, we're told. Because you, wouldn't have, you would have had to be an Aramaic-speaking Arab to even have access to the temple if you could be in Jerusalem. He was limited. The, the word was limited in the incarnation. 
as he ascends, the word now goes to all flesh. The word goes global. And now there's no worldly uh, inhibition to the word of God. This is exactly what we see in Paul's uh, comment in 1 Corinthians 9. He's describing his own ministry. For though I am free from all, gospel, he's been freed from everything, everyone, right? Free from the law. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Now, he's, now we're going to talk mostly about temple. So he wants to take the covenant and make it accessible to everyone. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings." So real quickly, I, th- I think we may read, especially that, that section, that by all means I might save some, that Paul's just being pragmatic here. But I think it's, mo- it's much more than that, because I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. I think part of what that means is when he experiences the gospel in a different flesh with different sorts of people, He's sharing something with them that he couldn't have gotten without it. Does that make sense? He's doing this because he wants to see more of Jesus. He hasn't seen as much of Jesus as he can if he's only seen it as a Jew or as a black person or as a white person. We're, we're limited by the, the ways that we let the world define the boundaries of Christ. And so church planning is meant to, to see the word become flesh in all different cultures so that we can see the fullness of Christ everywhere. Um, let me pull up real quickly uh, on our website, so I want to. I just want to briefly look at these implications for worship. What do, what does this mean for worship? If we're, if we're trying to talk about what does it mean to for the word to become flesh in all different types, in all different ways? Uh, let's see, where is it? Um, I'd encourage you to look at this if this is something you're really thinking about. Uh, yeah, page nine has implications of worship. But then I link to a longer document that I didn't include there. But I want to, as, as the last point, I want us to think about this difference between word and flesh or covenant and temple. And <coughs> one way to think of it is, that, is as the vernacular principle and the regulative principle. And so what's going on here is how do we decide we're going to do something in worship or in church? How do, we, how do we discern what is the church's mission and what is not? How do we discern what songs to sing on Sunday morning? There's a word aspect and there's a temple aspect. There's a covenant aspect and there's a missional presence aspect. So we're going to be thinking about 
is the song theologically sound? But we're also going to be thinking about is the song, does it fit the culture of our church? Every church has the dominant culture. Does it, does it fit? Not, not to be pragmatic, but to say we want the community to be united to Christ and to praise him in their own language. If you think about prayer being intimate, if you've ever learned a different language, there's a, there's a point in which you get so good that you start thinking in that language. Right? And, and, but until then, there's a distance. There's like this, this, uh, this hesitation. You have to say it in English, and then you say it in French. Right? And, you don't, and if you're talking to someone in French, you don't feel as intimate if that's not your first language or if you haven't gotten to that point. It's, a simil- it's similar with God. God says we, all nations and tribes and languages will be able to praise him. Prayer, worship, sermons will all be in our language. So that's the same, that's the same sort of principle that's going on in the vernacular. Does that make sense? Um, so that's one way that this works as a grid to discern. All right, is it a command? Like, is it a command to do sermons? We would say yes. You, you can do a church service without sermons, but you're lacking in something essential. Should the sermon be in English or Spanish? We would say here at 10 a.m. we're going to keep it in English. Right? Not because God told us that. Because that, that is the flesh of the church. Because he's, he's becoming one with us. And he wants to speak to us in our language. All right, and that's, that's sort of what gets filled out more later on uh, in the document as it moves to being missional in your culture and go in peace. Let's pray, and then we'll see you guys in 11 hours. 12, 10, I don't know. Father, we do praise you. We praise you that you are holy and majestic and sovereign. And you have decided, uh, you have chosen not to condemn us, not to stay removed from us, but you have sent Christ uh, in the flesh to be among us. Uh, We thank you for your word that we can study it. We thank you for the word that you made incarnate. And we do ask that you uh, would continue to unite us, that that communion would become more and more real, that we would feed on you and rest in you, um, that the gospel would grow. more and more deeply in our lives and our hearts that you would make us a community that truly does proclaim your good news in word and in deed. Uh, We thank you for this night and the privilege that it is, and we pray um, for tomorrow morning that we would be able to come here safe and rested and eager um, to, to develop as spiritual leaders. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.